attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where Each week, I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Alan Pullman, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It is great to be here with you today. Oh, this is going to be fun. Alan Pullman is an architect and founding partner of Studio 111. And he believes in the resiliency of cities, taking an optimistic approach to making them more just, more inclusive, and more sustainable for all. Since founding the studio in 2000, Alan has led the design and integration of the architecture and urban design work, including community-driven neighborhood improvements and innovative urban interventions, focusing on sustainable mobility and quality of life, such as reimagining what was once largely considered to be downtown's LA ugliest mall as an open air town center for retail restaurants and entertainment. He's also done redeveloping a sea of parking lots around a defunct mall in Nevada into a large urban green. They've been responsible for long beach and LA giving them their first ever vibrant waterfront entertainment zone at West Harbor project and tons more projects like that. Studio 111 is all about building inclusive, I've heard the word characterful used to describe them, characterful communities that will help cities continue to thrive. And so I love the work that you're doing, Alan. Uh, It's exciting to see someone sort of take all of the things that are out there that that are either outdated or no longer useful, and rather than tearing them down and throwing them into the landfill, using them. 
and creating them, not only just using them for other uses, but making them thriving, vibrant architecture. So it's exciting to see the work that you do. And I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah, I am too. I'm excited to talk to you, Mark. All right, let's learn more about you first, Alan. I'd love to learn about your origin story. When did you discover your passion for architecture and maybe who or what inspired you to get started? You know, listening to your podcast, I think a lot of us have a very similar origin story. As a kid growing up in suburban New York, I love to draw things, you know, cars. I love to build model airplanes. When I went into high school, I, I took a mechanical drawing class and I really loved that. And that just led me to think I want to do something creative. I think my parents would have been happier if I became a doctor or a lawyer, but I just felt like... <laughs> That's I, also common in the architect's origin story. Right? So <laughs> a lot of us have these similar stories. I mean, I've heard a lot of your guests talk about like loving to draw cars. So I was really into that. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a car designer. I didn't even think about that. I barely knew really that there was somebody designing buildings that was called an architect, but we had a neighbor who had a son and he was going to architecture school. So I had this vague idea about architecture. I knew I wanted to draw. When I was in mechanical drawing, I thought, oh, that's maybe this is what an architect does. And I had a chance to go to a summer, when I was in 11th grade, I took a summer class at Pratt Institute. And it was for high school students to sort of get them an idea of what architecture school was like. So I took the train in to Pratt. And I didn't love the class, but I remember at the end, the teacher came up to me and said, you, you should be an architect. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go to architecture school. It was, that's how it went. I found out later, she said that to every single person in the class. So it was a great recruitment tool for Pratt. But I did, I applied to architecture school and I ended up going to Syracuse University. And I still wasn't sure I wanted to be an architect, but I thought going to architecture school sounded great and interesting. And it's really where I started my development as an architect. Um, but I'll tell you, I was a terrible student and I barely graduated. It took me six years to graduate from architecture school because I did not understand the role of school. I didn't understand what school was about. What did you struggle with at architecture school that was so difficult? So when I was in high school, I was a pretty good student, not the best student, but a decent student. And academia though, it intimidated me greatly. And these professors, they, they intimidated me. So I thought what I need to do is show them how smart I am. I thought school was about showing how smart you are versus me not being smart, but learning. So what I did is I tried to not make any mistakes because I could draw really well. I'd start every design project with a pretty good review because my drawings were decent. And then once I got a good review, I'd freeze. I would stop right there because... I didn't want to show them I really didn't know what I was doing. So rather than saying, I don't know what I'm doing, let's make a lot of mistakes and learn from that. Right. I just wouldn't do anything. And I barely finished every single design project I ever had. That's a good lesson learned. I'm sure, you know, looking back on that, you know, that's learning from not knowing, right? Knowing when to ask questions, knowing to find the person or the resource that can show you what you don't know rather than just hiding it and never knowing. Exactly. I wish I had learned it while I was still in school. It took me many years to really look back and figure out what was going on because it really, truly was a struggle. And so when I graduated, and I did finally graduate, I ended up with this weird, both high self-confidence as myself with my talents 
and a very, very low regard, though, and insecurity about if I could actually do this as a career. So at the point of graduation, I had no idea if I could become an architect. I really didn't know. And what I did, given that weird combination, I just took the first job I could get. And it was at a commercial firm. It was a very nice firm. And I started working. I said, well, maybe I could figure out how this could work in the working world. And I worked at a series of commercial firms. And I was actually much better in the working world than I was in, in academia. I wasn't as intimidated. Even clients didn't intimidate me. And I muddled along and I ended up doing okay. I think I ended up at the first firm I worked at was a commercial firm and I led to another commercial firm and then led to another commercial firm. And, you know, after about a decade in, I was pretty good at what I was doing. And I was working for a firm that was doing large scale commercial projects, mostly retail centers. And I was pretty good at it. My clients liked me and my bosses liked me and it was going okay. But there were things that I was feeling weren't quite right. And I wasn't sure I was aware enough to understand where I wanted my career to go. I felt like I was in a career, but I wasn't controlling the career. It was kind of interesting. And after 10 years or so, at that point though, I had gotten married. I had a child. I had a house and a mortgage. So I really thought, well, I just have to just keep on going forward. I don't know where that is, but I just was muddling along, I would say, for many years in my career. So when you went into the profession, you grew up in New York. Where in New York did you grow up? You said suburban. And Long Island. Long Island. Okay. And I went to school upstate. So New York boy, you went to Syracuse, upstate New York. Yeah. My son went to Whitman. He just graduated a couple of years ago. Wonderful. Business school. Yeah. And so I know Syracuse well. <laughs> yeah. And so were the firms that you worked in also in New York? Were you in New York in your early career? So I worked in New York City at a firm called BBG, and they did commercial projects and hotels. And I got that job through a friend who had worked there who went to Syracuse. I was really so insecure. I wouldn't even apply to the big, you know, SOMs or KPFs. I was so really not sure I could get a job there. So I had this job and it was great. And I think I was doing well. I remember walking into my boss's office one day and saying, I need more money though. It's very expensive to live here and I want to stay in Manhattan and I need a raise. And he said, I have a better idea. Why don't you move to Queens? And I said, I really feel like I deserve to make more money. I think I could go out and get another job nearby for more money. And he said, you might be able to do that. Maybe you should try that. So I kind of thought, well, I guess I'm not doing as well as I I thought I was. And actually, you know what? I'll have to tell you, he was right. I couldn't get more money. (laughs) I interviewed, I couldn't. And at that point, somebody said, you should maybe think about moving to LA because you'll have more experience building things or doing a lot there. And then, you know, work there for a few years and come back and you could write your own ticket. And I took that advice and I moved to LA with very little planning just to try something new. I had grown up in New York and worked in New York and I was ready for a little adventure. And I've been here ever since. And that was 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. So that was before your family? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I worked in New York for two years and then I moved to LA. And I met my wife out here in Los Angeles. Got it. So you spent a couple of years in New York coming, you know, once you graduated from Syracuse, then went to the West Coast to LA worked for some more firms there as well. Yeah, similar types of firms, exactly. And then so how did you end up 
with your own firm? What's the story from working at those commercial firms in LA to starting Studio 111? So the kind of work we were doing is large commercial work. And like I said, I had developed some expertise in shopping centers. And the firm I was working for in LA at the end, uh, we were doing shopping centers all over the country. So I was flying around to Indianapolis and to Pennsylvania, Northern California, doing work. And nothing wrong with that work. It's actually quite great. But at the same time, it felt a little odd because you would go into a town and you would build a new shopping center on the outskirts of town in an area you really didn't know much about. And in an area you weren't even sure that it needed a new shopping center. Shopping centers were a vehicle for people to invest their money. You didn't even know if the town needed a shopping center, but it became an investment vehicle. So I was working in places I didn't really know. I had no connection to Los Angeles or my neighborhood. I was working nationally. And it felt like, do I know what I'm doing? Am I sure about the impacts of the projects I'm doing? Because I would go to some towns where they were building a new shopping center or a mall. And there was a quite lovely downtown that I knew might suffer because of the shopping center. Yeah, and they did, right? And they did. And not only that, but it was not just the physical sort of taking out of money of the downtown, but the local economy, because a lot of these downtowns were local business people that were part of the local economy, part of the local social scene and cultural scene. And we were maybe not helping them, we were hurting them. So it felt not very fulfilling, Mark, even though it was a paradox because I was very good at it. And yet at the same time, it was unfulfilling. And then randomly, my boss came in and said, I have this weird opportunity for you to do a facade improvement project for the city of Long Beach, which is the city in LA County where I lived. And it was to renovate a series of storefronts. And it was only like a few blocks from where I lived. And I jumped on that opportunity to try to win that project. And I did win that project. And then I worked on that project. And I really threw myself into it. And really one day, literally one day, a light bulb went off. It said, here I am working in my own community, helping local businesses, which I didn't even know existed, helping them. They need the help. And we're building something not tearing down old buildings or not building on vacant land, but restoring existing places. And the light bulb was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I meant to do. And now I have to find a way to do that. So that's really how I came about forming Studio 111 with that insight into this is really what fulfills me as an architect. Yeah, what a great story. I love connecting dots. And that's why I love this podcast is because I could invite somebody on, ask them their origin story from the day they learned about architecture all the way through to where they are now, and be able to sort of connect the dots back. And I could imagine that when you were doing the malls and you were feeling the way you were feeling, getting away from that work and finding this new building type or this new use that becomes much more purpose-driven and much more focused locally fulfills you. Um, that at the time you probably felt, oh, now I don't have to do that work anymore. I can go do this other work that makes me happy and gives back to my community. But now if you look back and connect the dots, you can see all the work that you've done up to that point where that purpose-driven work began, all of those other dots had to be connected. So true. Right? You had to have that experience. You had to have made those connections. You had had to work for those types of firms in order to get to the point where you can take all of that experience and network and connections and give it to the type of work that you do today and build this firm, Studio 111, 
to be able to focus on that forever. And that becomes the rest of your career. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And I'm glad I listened, you know, was listening to myself. Yeah. And I think I was patient. I say I felt like maybe I say, I think I used the word muddling along, but maybe it was about also giving myself patience to find the way that it would come and that I had to have faith that eventually with insight, you know, I would find that pathway. And when it happened, it felt very meaningful, very clear that I had to do this, but it wasn't so clear how I would do it. Right. Because at the same time, I didn't feel that I could just quit my job and put up a shingle. I still had my wife and kid and mortgage. And I thought, how am I going to do this? What's the best way to do this? And the first thing I realized is I was traveling quite a way commuting. This is before work from home and all the flexibility right. we have now. I was traveling quite a way to work in LA, but live in the community of Long Beach. And my first thought is I need to be closer to home. I need more time to spend with my family. It was an integration of my life to do that. And also I need to connect to where I lived and places I cared about. That was the other thing. I really wanted to work in areas I really cared and could connect and understand what I was doing. So I thought I'm going to have to quit my job. I had this idea. There was a firm that was very similar to the kind of firm I was working for, doing the same kind of commercial work that I was doing in Los Angeles. And it was here near my house. And I sent them a letter. I said, I'd like to maybe join your firm. You do the work that I currently do. You do it really well. I'd like to join your firm, but I have no interest in continuing doing this work. Would you like to talk to me? <laughs> what an interesting yeah. way of presenting yourself to a potential employer. Well, you know, I felt like at this point, there was not much to lose. Yeah. I could buy this. Fantastic. And I did that. And they actually called back and said, we'd like to talk to you. So I went in there and I was pretty clear. You know, I think you guys are great and you're very successful and you're doing great work. I don't want to do that work. I have this other idea. I feel like we need to reinvest in our communities, not build new, but rehabilitate what we already have. And I think that cities have been sprawling for a long time. I think there's going to be a return to city centers and a return to making cities livable again and restoring corridors and districts that have been forgotten. And that's work that really is meaningful to me. And I'd love to do that. And I'd like to do it here, maybe. And they were like, that sounds interesting. Why don't we try it? It was very, wow. very light. And it was like, yeah, let's try it. Let's do it. When was that? What year was that? That was about 19, I think 1999. It was a while ago. But in the development of modern malls is still at its height in 1999, right? It still was going on. Yes. Yes. But the writing was probably on the walls that these downtowns were starting to fail and that the idea that these towns are going to have to have some sort of rebirth in some way was starting to show, right? That those downtowns were in need of help. Absolutely. You saw the beginnings of the discussions about smart growth and urban infill. The Congress for New Urbanism had you know, put out their principles. Yes. So people were starting to think about cities. We didn't talk the way we talk now about the age of the city or the return to cities as much as we have since then. But the writing was on the wall that things were going to change. Demographics and lifestyles were going to make us rethink how we did traditional development. Yeah. So when I joined the firm, I was very clear, okay, we're going to do all this new work. And for a year, I 
put out RFPs and responded to RFPs and chase work and didn't get anything. It was kind of a dud. (laughs) Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. So what happened is I thought about this and I said, here's the problem. This firm, which is a commercial firm doing shopping centers and almost all shopping centers and mostly suburban shopping centers had a great brand and that's what they were known for. And here I am trying to change the perceptions in the marketplace and it's not going to work. That's maybe not going to work. So I brainstormed it and I said, we need to create a division and it has to have its own name and it has to have its own identity. A totally different identity. It's still part of this company, but it needs to have a different story, a different narrative. And that's going to help us get the kind of work that I'm really interested in doing and what I think is important for this firm to start doing. Because I do think there is an expiration date on this kind of work that we're doing. We need to start shifting. So we brainstormed it and I put together a position paper And I came up with the name Studio 111 because our address was 111 Ocean Boulevard and it had a clever logo we came up with. And we started with three people at Studio 111. And as soon 
Mark, as soon as I changed the narrative and created a brand, we started getting work. I love that. I love that. And we focus on the idea of brands for architects a lot. And that's a perfect example of building a brand around a very specific target market saying, here's what we do, right? And that's all we do. We're an expert in doing this type of work. And the work that's out there finds the experts. And so I love that. It's a perfect example of that. So we started with three people and we started by pursuing more storefront facade improvement programs because I knew that there was money from community development block grants and redevelopment agencies out there to do this kind of work. I knew we were passionate about it. We loved working with communities and landowners and individual businesses. And we brought a lot of talent to it. And not every architect was chasing this kind of work. So we pretty quickly found a niche and became throughout LA County, I think the go-to firm to do this. And we did literally hundreds of these for many, many years and built our DNA out of that kind of work, which meant working in existing places, working with limited budgets, so trying to be efficient and connecting with communities and bringing larger issues to sometimes small projects, trying to make as big an impact as we can with sometimes the most minimal means. At the time when you, before you rebranded, when you first got that new job, how was the structure set up? Did you come in as a partner or did you come in as an employee? I came in as an employee. I was just a designer, actually. And then when you rebranded, were you still an employee at that time? I was still an employee at that time. Yeah. So what's the rest of the story? Because today you're the founding principal, right? Yeah. Well, I founded Studio 11. And so it's interesting. The business part has been really interesting. There was another reason I wanted to join a firm. Because what I knew about architecture was I love design and engagement and working with clients and writing proposals. But I also knew that to be successful as an architect, we needed to have an accounting department and HR and insurance. And those are things that I knew were absolutely critical, but were not of particular interest to me. So by joining a firm yeah. that had all of those resources, I was able to focus on the architecture part and all those other things were covered. So I think it was smart. Looking back, I was smart to do that because I don't think I would be yeah. terribly good at those things. But it also instituted a professionalism to our small little startup. And what I would say, and part of our branding was, we are like a small boutique startup with that focus on design, but we have the resources and the professionalism of a larger firm. And that actually was really actually appealing to a lot of our early clients. It's such a great idea. It's a great model. I'm surprised that it's not used more often. Surprised too. I think we were lucky that I ended up at a firm that didn't impose their ego on bringing it all under one big banner because it's been really right. efficient for the company. I'm not going to say it's always been easy or there weren't conflicts. There absolutely were. Sure. You can't have a group of people without that, but it did work. So how did you become partner? Where did that happen? So even though we had our own division and had a totally different marketing and branding image, it's just been always one large corporation. And as the founding partners of that older firm started to retire, we created a stock ownership transition plan where we were buying them out over time. So for many years, I was spending a lot of my disposable income 
buying their stock. But over many years, I've been doing this a long time and you know, sort of the lesson of perseverance, we were able to find a way to finance all of the founding partners out. And now I'm the larger shareholder in the corporation. It's still one large corporation that's grown a lot since I joined. And it's been a great, you know, I'm very happy with the way things have evolved. Yeah, that's also a great example of that model as well, of a younger partner coming in and buying out the senior partners, right? Somebody who's built this thriving, successful architecture firm wants to move on and exit their firm. That's a great way to do that, right? Bring in a younger architect who wants to take on that responsibility and sell it to them over time. And we actually, you know, there's other senior principals and partners here. My partner here at Sumo Lemon, I brought him on and he's been, you know, side by side with me as we've grown over the last, you know, 15 years. Michael Bond, he also is a significant shareholder too. So we've spread the ownership of the company around a little bit, but we really were very intentional, Mark, about a transition plan. And it takes a long time to put it into place and takes a long time to actually make it work. But I think transitioning a firm from the founders to the next generation, it's one of, I think, our great you know success stories. It's not always easy to do. Yeah. Before we wrap up and before I ask you the final question that we have, I'd love to learn you know, maybe even share just an example of the type of work that you do, because we talked about this sort of on the surface, but can you sort of explain the type of work that you do today and maybe, you know, a specific project that you really like? So your intro was really great. We really are about creating communities and preserving and creating vital places and preserving vital places. And that was the lessons we learned in our facade improvements are the lessons we bring to all projects. So we do a lot of adaptive reuse because we went from facades to adapting and reusing full-on buildings. And then we also had to work a lot with communities. So we started doing a lot of district plans and vision plans with communities. And the waterfront is a good example. We're really creating a new waterfront destination in Los Angeles where they're frankly, aren't a lot. It's in the working port. It's called West Harbor. It's replacing an older, somewhat obsolete waterfront destination that was there before with a new sort of multi-destination place. We're working with James Corner Field Operations on landscape, and it includes restaurants and retail and parks and breweries and 6,000-seat amphitheater. It's really going to be a great destination for the residents of LA County. So we're really excited about that. You know, as we were talking about the return to the city and revitalizing cities, we also saw that cities needed to have housing built in them. Corridors couldn't support just retail or commercial. They needed to be mixed use. And the cities of the past were mixed use and we're going to return to that. And so we started to develop infill housing and large part of our practice now is infill housing. But as cities start to get very expensive and growth happened and gentrification happened, we saw the need for affordable housing. So now we're really focused on providing affordable housing in cities. And we're looking at ways of making that housing affordable through working with nonprofit developers, but also modular construction. So we wrapping up a series of modular housing projects for those formerly homeless and permanent supportive housing for veterans And I think it's all urban infill. It's all creating more vital places, but it's meeting 
the needs of the city of today. So those are just some of the work we're doing. And it ranges from everything from doing streetscape improvements and parklets to a 2 million square foot new redevelopment of an obsolete industrial area in downtown Los Angeles. So it's very varied. We didn't want to be about a typology. We wanted to be about something broader, which we call community. And that has opened up so many opportunities for us. Yeah, I love that as well. And you're pointing out so many lessons for the listeners because, again, a perfect example of a firm that is focused on a brand, has built a brand, has built a very specific niche and an expertise, but it has a tremendous diversity in the work that you do. Because that's often the pushback from architects who we recommend to build a brand or find a target market and focus on a specific market is that they don't want to be pigeonholed into just one thing. But you've constantly evolved and your portfolio has constantly been revising to the current need of the market, right? Find that market. What does that market need? It's very interesting to look at your portfolio and look at your brand and the work that you're doing. The thing that I love most about your story is that. You had done that work designing the malls throughout the United States, right? And that they are still there. Many of them are still there. Lots of them are now being torn down and thrown into landfills. You're seeing that throughout the country because malls are obsolete. They're no longer being used. And so there's lots of empty ones. And so it's such a redemption story to see Studio 111 taking that work that you were doing back then and using that work rehabilitating that work and finding new use for it. And like I said in the beginning, not only just finding a use for it, right? Just plugging in some other use, but redeveloping it and redesigning it and making it some fantastic place where people want to be and thrive. It's such a great story and it's such great work. So I appreciate you for doing it and for sharing it with our listeners. Thank you so much. It's nice to hear that. I mean, the one very quick last story about that is that there's a mall near us that the developer said, we want to turn this mall, single-use center, into a real community. Let's find a community architect. And they actually did a web search, and they came to us. They found us through community, and they said, we didn't want to hire a mall architect or somebody that knew retail. We wanted somebody focused on community. I didn't want to tell them about my whole history. I said, I'm glad you found us. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, it's a good story. (laughs) Thank you very much. Exactly. I love it. Before we wrap up, Alan, I'd love to hear your thought on the one question that I ask all my guests. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? One thing, I guess from my own experience, it would be to really spend time thinking about your narrative. Everyone loves a story. You need a story. Yeah, It's not just pitching yourself to a client, but it's how you even think about yourself and how you think about consultants. It's a story you want to tell to potential employees. So I think it takes time and effort and deep thought and work. And it's hard to do. You know, one of the hardest things about being a small architect is that you're constantly toggling between this big picture thinking about who you are and just the daily tactical work, you know, jobs and doing that you have to do. And I really can commiserate. That's hard, but I would urge everyone to take the time to do that big picture thinking. Think about your narrative. Everyone's going to come up Everyone has their own story. Everyone is unique. And that story, which is about who you are, who your firm is, what's special about your clients and your employees, is a worthwhile thing to just always ruminate and develop. His name is Alan Pullman. The studio is Studio 111, all spelled out, Studio 111. 
you can check out the website and all the work that they do at studio-111.com. So studio111.com. So studio-111.com is the website. Alan, thank you. I appreciate you for the work that you do for sharing your story. It's a fascinating story of the New York kid who didn't really feel comfortable doing what he was doing, finding new ways and just sort of kept moving forward in the direction that just felt right and landing where you are today, doing fantastic work, making the world a better place through the work that you do. So I appreciate you for doing that work and for coming by here and sharing your story at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me share my story. And thank you for your work and helping architects think about their firms and do better. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. 
It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.